Jim Cramer, the eccentric stocks guy from CNBC, has had it with you and your freedom and your prudence and your legitimate moral and medical objections to the Fauci-ouchie. And if you're not going to comply, well, then in his view, maybe it's time to take some more drastic measures. Lord knows what happened if you didn't partake. But back then, anyone who refused to get vaccinated would get ratted out immediately because we knew that person could hurt other people. The commonweal was a, a commonweal. Now we're engaged in a similar struggle with COVID and Eisenhower would be aghast. We have immunocompromised people who are incubators for every variant to come, walking around lawfully unvaccinated. That's psychotic. We have companies that have tried hard to get people vaccinated and now backing down. We have governors who want to be president by grandstanding on a foolish state's right issue, the right to get sick and get other people sick. So it's time to admit that we have to go to war against COVID. Require vaccination universally. Have the military run it. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you better be ready to prove your conscientious objector status in court. And even then, you need to help in the war effort by staying home until we finally beat this thing. Martial law. The CNBC stocks guy is calling for martial law to make you take the experimental shot to protect against a virus that poses very little threat to the vast majority of people who, according to the CDC, may very well contract and spread the virus even after they're vaccinated. My hope here is that Jim Cramer has just invested a bunch of money in Pfizer or something and is working on an elaborate pump and dump scheme. But I suspect that's not the case. I suspect he's just stating his honest views, which I suspect are the honest views of many liberals. That is that we need to suspend constitutional government, the ordinary American way of life for 15 days or 15 months or a few years or maybe just forever. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. My favorite comment yesterday is from CRDP07, who says, Pete Buttigieg says, black people don't have the resources to obtain a valid ID. Pete Buttigieg also says, black people worried about gas prices have the resources to just buy an electric car. <laughs> That's true. That was his advice. Mr. Secretary, what, ha- what happens? What do you say to people who are worried about the prices at the pump? Well, just uh, buy an electric car doesn't need to be the Tesla Model X. It can be the Model S. That's only like 60 grand. That's fine. Hi, that's what we can do. But yeah, but right. But black people can't afford to get bus fare to go down and get a valid government ID, but everyone's going to buy a Tesla. Is that, uh, it seems a little disingenuous to me. All of this disingenuity, all of this dishonesty and insincerity, it's enough to keep you up at night. Unless you have Bolin Branch, then you're going to sleep great. This Cyber Week, Bolin Branch, is offering their greatest deal of the entire year. If last night's sleep was not incredible, if you woke up, you just thought, ah, I need something a little better. Bolin Branch's sheets will make all the difference. With Bolin Branch, you get the best sleep of your life with their highest quality organic cotton sheets. Bolin Branch holds themselves to high standards across the board. Not just their sheets that are made this way, their pillows, their bath towels, their robes are too. The signature hemmed sheets are their all-time bestseller. I have gotten multiple hem sheets. I have bought them. You know, sometimes I get freebies. I have bought them. They are that good. In my life, I have had the privilege on occasion of sleeping in a really nice hotel. You know, if I'm on the road or to give a speech or something like that, or when I can steal the credit card from Shapiro. And the big difference with nice hotels 
is it, the bedding. It's the sheets. With Bowl and Branch, you can sleep on a five-star hotel kind of bedding every single night. This Cyber Week, give your loved ones the best sleep of their lives or treat yourself with Bowl and Branch. The Christmas packaging, famously soft sheets, blankets, pillows, and more will make a difference that everyone will feel. Get 25% off from November 23rd through December 2nd with their best offer of the year at bowlandbranch.com. Get 25% off B-O-L-L and branch.com. Exclusions may apply. Some good news on the vaccine mandate front. Uh, Contrary to what Jim Cramer and CNBC and all the rest of the libs want, uh, we seem to be moving away from the direction of martial law and mandates and lockdowns and taking away all your rights. Another federal judge has just blocked Joe Biden's vaccine mandate. Uh, This was a a federal district judge, St. Louis-based district judge, Matthew Shelp, who is now, uh, he's now stopping the mandate from going into effect for healthcare workers in 10 states. Those states are Alaska, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. When we talk about the vaccine mandate, it can get a little bit confusing and you hear about all these rulings from all these different courts. That's because there are actually multiple vaccine mandates. There's a vaccine mandate for federal workers. There's a vaccine mandate for federal contractors. There's a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. There's a vaccine mandate for workers at allegedly private companies with 100 or more employees. And so you've got to fight it on all these different fronts and there are slightly different mechanisms for all of these different mandates, but they're all getting smacked down. Just about every single challenge to the mandate that has gone up to one of these federal courts has at least resulted in a pause, in a stay of the mandate until they can sort out the legal issue. You know, the Daily Wire is leading the fight where the lead plaintiff in the U.S. uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that would be against the employer mandate from OSHA. But this is great news for healthcare workers. Last year, healthcare workers were the greatest heroes in the history of America. They were like the boys with the flag on Iwo Jima. They were the first responders on September 11th. They were the most wonderful, lauded people in the world. But then the minute they didn't want to take the experimental drug for a virus that doesn't pose a great threat to a lot of people, uh, all of a sudden they became persona non grata, you know, and they were, they were, uh, murderers and killers and irresponsible and anti-vax sh- uh, schmucks. So uh, this is great news. It's more evidence that the mandate is unconstitutional, which we've been calling from the very beginning. And as I've said, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but from the beginning, I've said, I think that Joe Biden knows that it's unconstitutional. I think Joe Biden knows he doesn't have the power to push these kinds of mandates in this way. He almost admitted as much on the campaign trail. That's why he said, I'm not going to do a vaccine mandate. I have no, no reason to do it. But, but then he reversed course. Why? Because even if the mandate is struck down in the courts, which it's looking increasingly like it will be, it doesn't really matter. Because by that time, all the people will have gotten vaccinated because their employers will have forced them to or they'll lose their jobs. And so it's just a pressure campaign. And then six months later, a court rules and says, no, it's unconstitutional. And Biden says, whoopsie daisy. Oops. Okay, well, never mind. You all already took the Fauci ouchie, so deal with it. He'll get exactly what he wants. Speaking of important court cases, there is an extremely important court case uh, that that has gone up to the court today. The court is hearing oral arguments in this case today. This is more important than the vaccine mandate cases. This is more important than any other case that's going to go before the court this year or in the next several years. It is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. 
this is a case about a Mississippi abortion law that could overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Roe versus Wade is the case that established the fictional constitutional right to abortion. Planned Parenthood v. Casey uh, uh, held it up. Capitol Hill police expect up to 20,000 protesters to show up to D.C. this morning. Uh, there will be pro-lifers there. There will be pro-abortion people there. This is uh, expected to result in a larger crowd than any Supreme Court demonstration ever. Uh, this is because Roe versus Wade is perhaps the single most unjust, constitutionally and legally incoherent Supreme Court decision in history. There are some competitors for this title, but it, it definitely can lay a claim to it. And a lot of our current political dysfunction comes from Roe versus Wade. Because regardless of your feelings on abortion, the simple fact is there is no right to an abortion in the Constitution. And even ab abortion's most ardent defenders, if they're being honest, will admit that. It's just not there. And uh, in 1973, activists on the court decided that they were going to invent this right to abortion. They were going to read some invisible ink written in the Constitution somewhere between the emanations and the penumbras. And because of that, now every Supreme Court nomination fight is bi extremely bitter. You remember Amy Barrett. You certainly remember Brett Kavanaugh, Robert Bork. I mean, it's, it seems to be whenever there's a conservative judge up for the court, there's these really hideously bitter fights because the Supreme Court holds an incredible amount of power now because they're not just interpreting the law according to their prudence and according to the text of the Constitution and according to case law, but they are now making law in, in some ways in, in so egregious a way that uh, it, it has no basis whatsoever in the text, like in Roe versus Wade. The, the specific issue is Mississippi's abortion ban after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, the, the court will address the question of whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. So this is before the baby can survive outside the womb, and you're talking about you're talking about an issue that will cut right to Roe versus Wade because Roe versus Wade forbids states from prohibiting abortion pre-viability. The lives of countless millions of people will be affected by this decision. It will be life or death because of this decision. And I'm not talking about the, the, the poor women who can't get abortions anymore. Thousands of women every year who died from abortions, even though that never took place. That was a complete lie from the pro-abortion movement. And actually, one of the guys who created that lie, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, he was the head of NARAL, the Abortion Rights League, he admitted that that was a lie. He said, yeah, that 5,000 number, we just made it up. The actual number of women who died in, from back alley abortions the year before Roe versus Wade was less than 40, 40. And, and by the way, 20 some odd women died of legal abortions that same year. And when you look at the legality by state by state of abortion in the year before Roe versus Wade was decided, your likelihood of dying from an abortion was basically the same if it was legal or illegal. Okay. But the lives of 60 million babies have been killed since Roe versus Wade. How many more in the future could be killed or could be saved? And almost as important as that, the future of the conservative legal movement will very likely be decided by this case. The Federalist Society, originalism, all of these, all of these movements that have developed over the past few decades, more than a few decades now, on how conservatives are going to retake the courts and reshape the law. 
if we don't win here, we've already lost so much. We lost marriage. We lost the definition of sex itself in the Bostock decision. We lost Obamacare. If we can't overturn Roe versus Wade, then what is the point of the conservative legal movement? Probably if, if we can't overturn Roe versus Wade, we're going to need a new conservative legal movement. Now, what you might need is a new interest rate on your home, which is why I would strongly recommend you check out American Financing. There is still time to make a positive impact on your budget before year end as mortgage rates remain near money-saving lows. Now, you might be thinking, why? Why? My mortgage is just fine as it is. Well, I humbly would suggest you, you should be thinking, how is your mortgage going to work for you? And that answer can be found at American Financing, America's Home for Home Loans. They give sound advice. They don't pressure you. Their salary-based mortgage consultants get to know you so they can lead you to greater overall savings. Could be as simple as finding a shorter loan term or consolidating debt because there's more to a refinance than just a lower rate. And through this, they save customers up to $1,000 a month. That's a lot of money. Why not see what they can do for you? Call 800-685-5696. That number again is 800-685-5696. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net, NMLS 182-334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Speaking of babies, the White House has just released its uh, Christmas photo. So the Biden White House Christmas photo showed a fireplace mantle hung with stockings for six of Joe Biden's grandchildren. It's very nice, sort of elegant design in, in the grand room. Six stockings. Wait a second. Joe Biden has seven grandchildren, but there's only six stockings there. And they've got all their little names on there. So it's clearly for the grandchildren. Now you might say, this is just because Joe Biden's forgetful. He is very forgetful. But I don't know, Jill Biden's not that forgetful. And the White House staff is certainly not forgetful. Oh, right. One of those grandchildren is illegitimate. It was the grandchild that Hunter Biden had with London Roberts, who is a stripper And Hunter Biden refused to acknowledge the baby. And then a court forced him to take a paternity test. And then it turned out he was the father, meaning Joe Biden is the grandfather. And Joe Biden refuses to acknowledge his own grandkid. According to London Roberts's attorney, neither Hunter Biden nor Joe Biden, the warm, wonderful, happy, good old Uncle Joe president, has ever seen the three-year-old child. I really do not mean this as a cheap political attack. I don't mean this to go after family or anything like that. Not very much shocks me in politics. But I am genuinely impressed by the cruelty of the president of the United States, Joe Biden, in refusing to acknowledge one of his own grandchildren. Yeah, Hunter Biden's a complete degenerate. I don't expect anything of him. He's a crooked degenerate. But what about Joe Biden? I'm not going to, I don't want to take any cheap political attacks here at Joe. I just think Joe says he's a nice guy. He's a normal guy. He's a devout Catholic, right? And he is cruelly refusing to acknowledge one of his own grandchildren, the president of the United States. Shouldn't that be a scandal? What is this kid going to think? The kid's three years old now, probably doesn't understand too much. What is this kid going to think? Think it's a she, I don't know. Let's just say it's a she. Uh, I'll, I'll look at, I don't know very much about, about the kid in Navy's sort of ambiguous name as so many are these days, but what is this child going to think when she grows up 
and is nine or 10 years old, says, uh, why won't my daddy acknowledge me? Why won't my grandpa, the president of the United States, acknowledge me? I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm a mistake. I'm an accident. I'm a shame. I'm a problem. I'm a humiliation. That's a horrible thing to do to a child. That's a, that is a genuinely horrible thing that Joe Biden is doing right now. And I try to resist all the easy political attacks on Hunter Biden, even though there are plenty of legitimate attacks because he was compromising national security. He was selling America's influence around the world to the highest bidder. I mean, there were a lot of serious problems with Hunter. I try to lay off the Hunter stuff. But what Joe, it's not even Hunter's problem. So I don't have any expectations of him. What Joe Biden is doing here is disgusting. It's despicable. It's shameful. It's extremely cruel. And it should be a national scandal and more people should talk about it. Speaking of cruelty, Twitter has a new feature. It's called Twitter Spaces. If you remember the app Clubhouse, it's kind of like that, where you can log in and have audio conversations with a curated group of people. So Twitter has just rolled this out. I haven't tried it yet, but I did see when Twitter rolled it out that there was a trend, a trending hashtag. The trending hashtag was a hashtag, Mayo Monkeys Gotta Go. I said, Mayo Monkeys, what is a Mayo? And then I looked at what was next to it. YT people deserve nothing. N-U-F-F-I-N. Y-T, like YouTube people? Well, I agree. I do think they deserve nothing. I don't think they deserve anything. Oh no, it's white. Then I realized it's white people. White people deserve nothing. Hashtag Mayo monkeys gotta go. Now I have always considered myself more of an aioli monkey. I'm a little spicier and Mediterranean and very, very sophisticated. But I think they were using this term Mayo monkey to refer to all white people. Take a listen to the conversation. First of all, let me TikTok. Let me tell you something. If you're in here, or y'all go run back and tell them, y'all ain't gotta tell them, tell them that nobody else said shit but me. I'm going to say this, and you ain't gotta chop shit up. I am for the white genocide. I am for the total erasure of the white race. I, you don't have to chop this up. Yes, I am for all of you white dying like flies. I am for it. I am for it. I support it. I am for putting all you white possums in a gas chamber and letting that motherfucker ring. I am for it. So you don't have to chop shit up. I'm for it and I'm going to stand 10 toes down behind it. Simple as that. So you got to chop shit up. You ain't got to screw the shit. I said it and I stand on it. Now, lest you think that this was just some kind of random uh, brief exchange from a co-host of this conversation on Twitter, it wasn't. One of my producers was in the conversation live when it was happening. It was the whole conversation. Obviously, look at the title of it. White people deserve nothing. Hashtag, hashtag male monkeys got to go. This was trending on Twitter. Which, it would seem to contradict the lie that we're often told, and now that children are taught in schools across the country, that black people can't be racist. You'll hear this taught in corporate boardrooms, in classrooms, all over the place. Black people can't be racist. So even if they say something like this, they're not really racist because they're black. And if you're black, you can't be racist. So by definition, they're not racist. Even if they're calling explicitly for the, the white genocide, <laughs> their, their words, not mine, and saying we have to put white people in gas chambers. It goes without saying, I hate to even be so cliche as to say this, that if white people did anything like this, it would be not just uh, an incident on Twitter, not just a controversy in the United States. It would be an international incident. The UN would be looking into this, Okay. But it's not. And so 
there is obviously a double standard here. And it's frankly, it's not even really worth, I, I mention it just so briefly for the, for the handful of people who don't see the point, who don't see the double standard. Contrary to the view that is taught in schools and in offices and HR trainings and comes from critical race theory and, and other associated movements, contrary to the idea that only white people can be racist, all of the evidence we have available to us suggests that white people are the least racist people on earth. They are the least racist people ever in the whole history of the world. Pew Research had a survey that came out uh, just a few years ago, showed that white people have the lowest racial consciousness by far. They asked people who are white, black, Asian, and Hispanic, how important is your race to you? And of the people who said that race was somewhat or very important, you had that number over 50% for Asian people, over 50% for Hispanic people, over 70% for black people said their race is somewhat or very important to them. Only 15% for white people. Shockingly low racial consciousness. There's another survey, survey just came out from Rasmussen that said that 37% of American adults believe that black people hold racist views as opposed to just 15% who, uh, who believe that white people hold racist views. Now you might say, well, that's just because, I don't know, there were a lot of white people polled, but it's not true. Even among only the black people polled, the black people believed that black people were more racist than white people. 31% of the black people surveyed by Rasmussen said that they considered people of their own race to be racist, while only 24% of them thought that white people were racist. So we're not saying that white people are not at all racist or that black people are completely 100% racist, but all of the data we have suggests that white people are the least racist people in the history of the world. In fact, the very concept of racism, the very idea that racism might be a bad thing comes from white people. (laughs) That's just look at the history of the ideas. So the idea that, uh, that only whites can be racist is as we see from social science, as we see from various Twitter conversations, perfectly divorced from reality. Okay. It's, and you see this a lot in our culture, increasingly so. Maybe the most obvious version of this is that is transgenderism, the idea that men are really women. And if you say that they're not, you're, you know, you have to be silenced. If you contradict this obvious delusion that is totally divorced from reality. But you see this on issues of sex, race, economics, (laughs) politics, everywhere you're seeing a chasm opening up between the official narrative that the establishment tells us and reality. And this is a very scary thing because things do not end well when your society is divorced from reality. Let's take this beyond the racial issues and the male monkeys having to go and the sex even just broadly. If your society is grounded on delusion, your society is not going to flourish. And when you look around us right now and you see society crumbling in basically every sector and you, and you see the people running our society have extremely low approval ratings, rightly so. You, you, you see the consequences of that delusional kind of ideology. Now you're probably in this crazy time going to want to protect your money and your future and your retirement, which is why I would recommend you check out 
Alto IRA. I was very skeptical of crypto, okay, for many years. I'm kind of a Luddite, so I was very skeptical. I just got into it. I just got into it. I couldn't resist. And when I get into crypto, I want to make sure that I'm doing it in the smartest possible way. With an Alto Crypto IRA, you can trade crypto like Bitcoin and avoid or defer the taxes. So you might be in crypto already, but you're probably doing it in a very inefficient, costly way. Now you can get into investing in crypto and do it in a tax-advantaged retirement account. Alto's Crypto IRA is the easy way to get crypto into an IRA. Trade all you want without the tax headache. You can create an account in just a few minutes and invest with as little as $10. There are no setup charges. You get secure trading 24-7 through Alto's integration with Coinbase. 80-plus coins available, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Cardano. Alto's industry-leading security makes it safe. There are multiple ways to fund your account. You can make a cash contribution, transfer cash from an existing IRA, roll over an old 401k. You're ready to take your investments to the next level, diversify like the pros, and trade without tax headaches. Open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as 10 bucks. Join at altoira.com slash Michael, A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Start investing in cryptocurrency today, altoira.com slash Michael. Speaking of delusion, you've really got to read Matt Walsh's new book. Head on over to johnnythewalrus.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y, thewalrus.com. Reserve your copy of Matt Walsh's timely masterpiece about a little boy who thinks that he's a walrus. Also, if you have not already, go check out our new comedy series, Truth Yeller, hosted by comedian and podcaster Adam Carolla over at dailywire.com slash watch. In each episode of Truth Yeller, Adam invites a celebrity guest to join him for an evening of stand-up comedy, improv, and interview all in front of a maskless live audience. The first two episodes are available now with the first episode starring none other than Jay Leno. Head on over and catch up on our new series over at dailywire.com slash watch today and enjoy. We'll be right back with a lot more. Speaking of Twitter, Hipster Rasputin is out at Twitter. Jack Dorsey, the founder and CEO of Twitter, is out. I think he actually left the company already once before and then he came back. Well, now he is out again. The new CEO is the current CTO, the technology officer, Parag Agrawal. And as one does now when someone comes into a position of prominence, everyone's digging up Parag's old tweets. There is one tweet that is really going viral where he makes some comment about white people and racism, and he's really quoting the Daily Show. And I think it's a little bit of a misdirection. I don't think that's the most alarming thing that Parag has ever tweeted. I don't think it's the most alarming thing he's ever said. There's a, a far more unsettling clip that came from a podcast that Mr. Agrawal was on recently. It's called In Machines We Trust. In the clip, Agrawal talks about misinformation and his theory on how Twitter needs to combat the alleged scourge of misinformation. Who gets to decide what is misinformation? Can you give a clear clinical definition of misinformation? Does something have to have malicious intent to be misinformation? How do you know if your credible sources are truthful? What's measuring the credibility of those sources? And someone even saying, I've seen misinformation in the so-called credible sources. So how do you define that phrase? I, I think that's the, the existential question of our times. 
defining misinformation is really, really hard. As we learn through time, our understanding of truth also evolves. We attempt to not adjudicate truth. We focus on potential for harm. And when we say we lean on credible sources, we also lean on all the conversation on the platform that also gets to talk about these credible sources and points out potential gaps as a result of which the credible sources also evolve their thinking or what they talk about. So we focus way less on what's true and what's false. We focus way more on potential for harm as a result of certain content being amplified on the platform without appropriate context. There's the key. There's the key to all the bad stuff that's about to come out from Twitter and all the bad stuff that's really already going on at Twitter. And it's the, it's the heart. I don't think I'm overstating it. It's the heart of all the bad stuff that we have been getting out of the left in recent decades. We don't try to adjudicate what is true. We just try to look at the potential for harm. This simple sentence, which he repeats, it's not that he misspoke. He knows exactly what he's saying. That sentence is at the very heart of our cultural rot. We don't want to find out what's true. We don't want to find out what's true. We, maybe there's a skepticism there. We can't really know what's true. How are you supposed to know what's true? A lot of people on the left have been telling us that you can't really know what's true. There is no objective truth. The movements of Derrida, the movements of post, postmodernism, the, the movements all throughout the academy and all throughout our society. A lot of people on the right have embraced this too, especially libertarians have embraced this kind of talk. Well, who's to know what's good? Maybe your definition of good is different than my definition. Who's to know, who, who really can adjudicate truth? We just need to respect one another's boundaries. We just need to respect, you do you, I'll do me. We forget about what's true. Let's only focus on what's harmful. Now, there's another really nasty premise in here, which is that what's true and what's good might be totally different things. And, and consequently, what's false and what's harmful might be totally different things. In the traditional society, the good and the true and the beautiful were considered to be united, the transcendentals, right? We, what do we want? We want what's good and true and beautiful. But in the modern society that throws all those crazy old ideas away from old uncle Aristotle and Christianity, throws those away, something might be, might be good, but false. You know, a lie that we all, but the lie maybe is for our own good. And something might be true, but really harmful. And so we've got to deny that truth. Forget about the truth, he says. In the old society of Christianity, you know, that built our entire civilization, we, were, we believed that the truth would set you free. And we believed that lies would enslave you. And now we believe the opposite. Now we believe, look at transgenderism. I guess that would be the clearest example of this. We believe that the truth is cruel, that the truth will actually enslave you. If you're a man, but you don't want to be a man, that that truth that you are a man will enslave you and it's mean and it's nasty and it's wrong. And the lie, the lie say that you are a woman if you're really a man, that the lie will set you free. And some, that's what Agrawal is talking about here. And actually, you, you will see it applied specifically on this transgender issue. They've already set policies to this effect at Twitter, that if you 
directly call a man who thinks he's a woman a man. You can be banned for that. Doesn't matter that the thing you said is true. Maybe it's harmful because you didn't lie. Because lies are good, according to these moral idiots. I don't, I don't even say it with wrath and anger to say that they're idiots. I mean, it's just a fact. They're moral idiots and they, and it's going to harm them and society if they persist. <laughs> you talk about harmful. Lies are harmful and the truth is good and the truth will set you free. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. He says, if you look for truth, you might find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will find neither truth nor comfort, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair. It is no mere coincidence, it's no accident that as our society has discarded truth and pursued only a, an un, unfettered comfort, that despair has increased, that people are increasingly desperate and they turn to drugs and they turn to suicide and they turn to all sorts of madness. Got to ground the society in the truth whether that's on Twitter, whether that's in our ordinary conversations day by day, whether that's our government, whether that's the whole way that we live together. Agrawal goes on. He says, our role here at Twitter is not to be bound by the First Amendment. We're going to focus less on thinking about free speech and more thinking about how the times have changed. Now, I know that a lot of conservatives are going to be really ticked off by this and they're going to say, oh, what a jerk. I, I hate this guy. That's terrible. He's, he's making a halfway decent point in the most offensive and off-putting way possible. But he, he's saying, look, at Twitter, our standard is not exactly the First Amendment standard. Just like in a school. A school is not necessarily bound by the First Amendment. The school can say, Johnny, stop saying that in the way that the government might, be, might not be able to say Johnny, stop saying that, right? The, the school, the family, the office place, the place of employment, even civic associations can, can put more constraints on speech. They can enforce standards to a greater degree than the government can. That's always been the case in America. Local communities can enforce more of these standards than the government can. That's long been the case in America. And I think it is fair for Agrawal to say, look, we're, we're a platform. We want our users to have a good experience. So we're not going to allow certain hateful speech. It makes perfect sense. We've always done that. I, I can't go into a restaurant and just start screaming whatever I want to scream. I, I might be asked to leave. And I, I, I think it's perfectly legitimate for Twitter to say that, to, to have a similar kind of standard. But what's the standard going to be? Is it going to be that if I tell the truth, if I say perfectly ordinary things, if I say that men are not women, if I say that uh, white people shouldn't all be genocided, <laughs> like the Twitter space people say they should be, if I say that uh, actually maybe, maybe I want to vote for Donald Trump, if I say that those things ought to be protected, right? I think we just need to, as I said in my book, Speechless Controlling Words, Controlling Minds makes a great Christmas present, number one national bestseller. If I, as I said in this book, we conservatives need to move beyond just talking about procedural norms and just talking about one standard view of the First Amendment and pretend that that has always applied everywhere in society when it hasn't. We need to start talking not just about the freedom of speech, 
but about what we ought to say. It gets back to the first part with Agrawal on Twitter, which is we need to start talking about what's true and what's good. And we need to start promoting what is true and good and beautiful. And we need to start opposing and discouraging things that are ugly and false and wicked. Speaking of the boundaries of speech, you know, my friend Lauren Boebert is in trouble. Lauren Boebert, freshman congressman, conservative congress, congressman, she made a joke about Ilhan Omar. She made a joke that Ilhan Omar supports terrorism. And uh, you might not think it's a joke because Ilhan Omar has been caught on camera giggling about Al-Qaeda and Hezbollah. Uh, but, you know, it's just a joke. She was just making a joke. And you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to make jokes about the left. And you're certainly not allowed to call them terrorists. You are almost required to call right-wingers terrorists and insurrectionists and white supremacists and neo-Nazis and whatever. Call half the country that. But you're not allowed to make jokes about the left, even leftists who giggle about Al-Qaeda. So Lauren began to apologize to Ilhan Omar. I don't think she should have apologized. I'm not against apologies. I'm very pro-apology. But in this case, I don't think it was warranted. So she went to apologize. I thought that was a mistake. They had a phone call. Ilhan Omar released this statement about Lauren Boebert. She goes, quote, today I graciously accepted a call from Representative Lauren Boebert in the hope of receiving a direct apology for falsely claiming she met me in an elevator, suggesting I was a terrorist, and for a history of anti-Muslim hate. Instead of apologizing for her Islamophobic comments and fabricated lies, Representative Boebert refused to publicly acknowledge her hurtful and dangerous comments. Instead, she doubled down on her rhetoric, and I decided to end the unproductive call. I'm glad that Lauren stood her ground because what Lauren did, she called, privately apologized and Ilhan Omar said, no, you've got to publicly apologize and you've got to talk about Islamophobia, which is a completely made up term. And you've got to talk about your anti-Muslim hate, which she, Lauren Boebert has not demonstrated. And you've got to, uh, you're, you've got to acknowledge your dangerous comments. She hasn't said anything that's dangerous. And Boebert said, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. That was the right thing to do. Here's, here's, here's Lauren's version of the conversation. Hey everyone, this is Lauren with a quick update on a phone call I had today with squad member Ilhan Omar. I had reached out to her Friday and three days later I was able to connect with her on the phone because I wanted to let her know directly that I had reflected on my previous remarks. Now as a strong Christian woman who values faith deeply, I never want anything I say to offend someone's religion. So I told her that even after I put out a public statement to that effect, she said that she still wanted a public apology because what I had done wasn't good enough. So I reiterated to her what I had just said. She kept asking for a public apology. So I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. She continued to press and I continued to press back. And then Representative Omar hung up on me. Love it. Great stuff. Glad Lauren did it. Maybe this was 4D chess. Maybe she was just waiting to get Ilhan the whole time, but this is exactly right. No reason to apologize for this joke to Ilhan Omar whatsoever. Meanwhile, by the way, some of Lauren's allegedly conservative Republican colleagues are going on CNN to bash her. 
I have uh, time after time condemned my colleagues on both sides of the aisle for racist tropes and remarks that I find disgusting. And this is no different than any others. Uh, as a member of Congress and seeing such division in our country, um, we all have a responsibility, both elected members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and the American people in our communities and are at work at, at, in our communities and everything else to lower. We have a responsibility to lower the temperature. And this does not do that. I didn't come to Congress uh, to throw bombs on Twitter, to raise, take advantage of people by saying crazy things, to raise money, or to be a comedian. I'll leave comedy to Dave Chappelle. I was disappointed in the comments. I was encouraged to see that she did apologize for the comments, and I believe that's a step in the right direction. That's Republican Nancy Mace, quote-unquote Republican Nancy Mace. She's in a very conservative district in South Carolina, but she's a relatively liberal Republican. She is now trying to codify transgenderism into the into the federal law, into the Civil Rights Act. She refused to sign the amicus brief of conservatives pushing for the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So she's a lib by Republican standards. And I just got to tell you, I am skeptical of any, any so-called conservative who spends her time going on CNN to bash her conservative colleagues, especially over a joke, almost over any issue, but especially over a joke, deeply suspect. You didn't come to Congress to attack Democrats, as she says. No, you came to Congress to attack fellow Republicans on CNN. Not a good look. Speaking of the boundaries of speech, another one bites the dust. Not just hipster Rasputin, Jack Dorsey at Twitter, who stepped down apparently voluntarily or somewhat voluntarily. Fredo. Fredo Cuomo at CNN was taken out into a fishing boat on the lake and he didn't come back, metaphorically speaking. He has been suspended indefinitely from CNN after a story came out that Fredo uh, advised his brother, Andrew Cuomo, who was you know, governor of New York, during his political scandals, and Cuomo may, Chris Cuomo may have used some of his journalistic contacts to try to help Cuomo. Here's the statement from CNN. When Chris admitted to us that he had offered advice to his brother's staff, he broke our rules and we acknowledged that publicly. Hold on, I just want to pause right there. The way that CNN phrased this makes it seem like the transgression was not the wrongdoing. It wasn't that he helped his brother and used his contacts. It's that he admitted it the wrongdoing, right? He says, when Chris admitted to us that he did this, he broke our rules. You're never, at CNN, the rule is you never admit wrongdoing. <laughs> so he, was that a Freudian slip? Was that a Fredoian slip? I think it might've been. They go on. We also appreciated the unique position he was in and understood his need to put family first. However, these documents point to a greater level of involvement in his brother's efforts than we previously knew. As a result, we have suspended Chris indefinitely pending further evaluation. This is going to be maybe an unpopular view on the right, but I've got to say it because it's my view and I think we ought to put the truth first. I feel bad for Fredo. I feel bad for Fredo. Not because he didn't do anything wrong. He did a lot of things wrong. But I think he's being held to a different standard here than other CNN employees. First of all, is the, the story here, the shocking, the big revelation is that a CNN host, a CNN employee whose brother and father were both Democrat governors of New York, might just possibly be a Democrat operative? <gasps> no, you're, stop the presses. You're kidding me. Well, gosh, next you're going to tell me that that bridge that I bought in Brooklyn isn't really mine. Is that really? You're telling me he is a Democrat? No way. 
Second of all, he's not the first CNN employee or, or establishment media employee to do this. Remember Donna Brazil? Donna Brazil, I think while working for CNN, passed debate questions to Hillary Clinton. She still works throughout the establishment media. Remember uh, Candy Crowley? Remember her? She was moderating a debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, and she just lied on behalf of Barack Obama to trip up Romney, made him lose the debate on a, based on a complete lie regarding the Benghazi terror attack. Remember that? Doesn't matter. Oopsie-daisy, whoops, moves on. They're, they're all Democrat operatives. That's what CNN is. CNN is not some impartial journalistic outlet where facts matter first, no matter what they say. It's a propaganda piece for the left. I don't even really, it doesn't even really bother me. In the history of media, generally, parties have had their own outlets. The Republicans had their outlets. The Democrats had their outlet. That's why their newspaper is called the Tennessee Democrat, right? You know, and so I don't, I don't really even mind that. I wish they were more honest about it, but poor Fredo. Poor Fredo. I guess that was ever thus. Poor Fredo. He's getting frustrated. He's saying, I'm smart. Not like everybody says, like, dumb. I'm smart. I can do things. And, but he can't now because he's been suspended. Poor guy. All right. You, you know, do you remember, I don't mean to belabor the point on Chris, Chris Cuomo, but do you remember during COVID, he got COVID and then he pretended that he was he was holding up and quarantining in his basement. And then he even did that whole thing where they filmed him coming up for the first time and seeing his family and I missed you. And then it was all fake because it turned out that he was actually going out for bike rides with his family during the alleged quarantine out in the Hamptons. And the only reason we know that is because he got into a fight with some guy on the street. And the guy said, hey, oh, aren't you supposed to be holed up in your room? And he's get, they get into a big fight and shouting match. So it was all BS. The guy spreads lies on his show constantly. That, though, doesn't violate the journalistic integrity of CNN. What violates the journalistic integrity seriously is that he got caught. That's what does it. Speaking of getting caught, you know that the debate over critical race theory in schools has largely hinged on this question, is critical race theory really being taught in schools? The left might say, well, it's a good thing. Well, it's a bad thing. Well, I guess they'll, they'll really just say it's a good thing. But what a lot of it has come down to is critical race theory isn't really being taught in schools. It's just this legal movement. It's only being taught at Harvard Law School. You conspiracy theorist conservatives think it's being taught in elementary, middle, and high schools. It's not. So we have video uh, from the Detroit superintendent, Nikolai Viti saying explicitly that the Detroit public school curriculum is deeply imbued with critical race theory. Our curriculum is uh, deeply using critical race theory, um, especially in social studies, but you'll find it uh, in English language arts and the other uh, disciplines. We made, uh, we were very intentional about creating a curriculum, infusing materials, um, and embedding critical race theory within our curriculum. They're not even shallowly using critical race theory. They're deeply using it. You heard it from the horse's mouth. Was that the horse's mouth? I don't know. That was some part of the horse. And actually, it's a good explanation of it. Because critical race theory is not, it's not just like calculus. It's not just like um, division or arithmetic. It's not just like you're being taught a lesson. Okay, this week we're going to learn critical race theory. 
Critical race theory is a lens. It is an analytical framework through which you can view just about everything. I also talk about this in my book, Speechless Controlling Rates, Controlling Minds, that critical theory broadly is not just a, a system, but it's a gadfly on other academic disciplines, right? It's not just one discipline. It's, it's part of all social studies and literature and everything. And it's there. And that's the reality of it, folks. And they're going to lie to you because they don't believe that truth really matters. They don't think that the truth is necessarily good. They think that some lies can be really good and some truths can be really harmful. Don't let them get away from it. The truth will, in fact, set you free. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. See you tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidovsky. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Associate producer, Justine Turley. Audio mixer, Mike Coromina. And hair and makeup by Cherokee Hart. Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on the best-selling children's author, Matt Walsh Show, leftists at St. Louis University have gone to extreme lengths to get my talk tonight canceled. I'll still be there tonight, of course, but first we'll talk about what we've learned from this whole absurd ordeal. Also, Chris Cuomo is suspended from CNN, yet Zoom sex fiend Jeffrey Tubin remains employed. So how do they choose who gets free passes over there and who doesn't? We'll talk about that. And just a day after Jack Dorsey resigned as CEO of Twitter, they've already made a major move to uh, suppress free speech on the platform. Plus, the Jussie Smollett trial begins as new revelations emerge about just how far he went in his um, race scam. And a CNBC host calls for the military to administer forced vaccinations. I'll talk about all of that and much more today as a best-selling children's author on The Matt Walsh Show. <laughs>